this is Ken Finn in a capital. What's this? That's new. Oh, no, I'm just trying to help you out. I'm my name's Ken Finnan, and it's my job to get you past the series six exam. Let's get this out of here. We're trying to get this out of the way. Okay. After many, many, what, oh, probably a year of just not doing it because I thought my short videos would be good. I decided to finally do this after getting such pressure and a Sem saying he's protesting. He's boycotting the six until I do it. So it's a Sunday night. I'm not doing anything. I'll probably get done at like two o'clock in the morning. But let's get on to it. It's now time for the series six, quick and dirty. Oh, okay. Look, you're ready. You've done the work. This should be the last thing you do before you take it, other than reading customer accounts. Always remember read customer accounts. You should be ready. You've got sleep. You've eaten breakfast, lunch, all that stuff. You are ready to take this thing like a bad bitch. But this is something you can maybe listen to as you're driving or the day before, just to get little things to stuck in your head. So we're now doing the series six, quick and dirty. It's 50 questions. You know, need is 70. And what do you get to do if you, once you pass, you can start selling mutual funds, annuities, variable life insurance, UITs, and muni fund securities, which are 529s and stuff. But we're going to get into that. We're going to get into the whole thing. This should be the thing you watch, the last thing you do as you're driving, okay? Okay, let's get started. Instead of listening to me fucking ramble. So we got, first of all, remember, there's a couple acts we have to deal with, right? So there's an act of 1933. is about new issues. It's all about delivering the prospectus and raising money. Then we have the Act of 34, which is about, and I use the acronym MISPERMS. You should see that somewhere. It's all, Act of 34 is about the trading and manipulation. So let's go through that. M for manipulation. I for the insiders who is an insider. S for the SEC. They created the SEC. The other S for short selling. Remember, MISPERMS, M-I-S-S, PERMS. The second S is for short sell. The rules on short sales, not really a big deal on this test. P for proxy rules. That's the voting by mail, okay? That you're allowed to vote by mail. Let somebody else vote in your behalf for you. Um, e is the exchanges. All the exchanges and the broker-dealers now had to register with the SEC, which was created in this act. Then we have the R's. R, then we have the 10Q, which is quarterly. 10Q, you're welcome. 10K is the annual. And then the, then the 8K is in between that stuff for important material changes. Okay, M if, is for manipulation. That is... They put in the rules that if the SEC decides what you're doing is manipulation, that's like wash trading, marking the close, marking the open, all these things that manipulate the price is covered under the Act of 34. And then the last S is stabilization. I can't speak. Stabilization allows the underwriter, the lead underwriter or someone in underwriting team to buy shares after the IPO to hold it at a price. There's rules on that. You can't pay over the IPO price or higher than another independent bid when you place it. Again, that's probably not heavy on this exam because that's trading stuff. Okay, we also have the Act of 1939, which is all about Trust Indenture Act of 39, which is all about corporate bonds. Then we have the 240 Act, which I think is such a shitty thing to do. The Investment Advisors Act covers federal covered investment advisors, which maybe you'll take the next when you take the 65, and then Investment Company Act of 1940. So literally, the Investment Advisors Act of 40 and the Investor Company Act of 40. Why would they do that? Just wait a year. Okay. So the Investment Company Act of 40 is literally this exam, right? So it covers FUM. Remember, if it sounds like fun, but it's not. FUM. Face amount certificates, they're gone, but know, what they, know that they're covered. UITs, okay? And then management companies. Management companies cover opening, opening funds, closed-end funds, and ETFs. Okay, let's get started in the other shit. Okay, mutual funds. Okay, mutual funds are also known as open-end. What is And again, this is quick and dirty. I have a ton of videos explaining it. If you need me to explain what a mutual fund is, we're in trouble, right? Okay. So mutual fund is an open end. They can issue shares constantly 
When you buy the shares, you buy them at NAV plus a sales charge. Again, NAV plus a sales charge. What's the max sales charge? Well, it depends, right? Normally, the, the max sales charge is 8.5% if they don't charge other fees. Normally, wouldn't go into this, but I'm getting feedback that this stuff is going to be on the exam. So the max sales charge is 8.5% if they have no 12B1 fees, which is called an asset-backed asset back sales charge. I didn't know that. An asset-backed sales charge, if they don't charge that, they can charge 8.5% if they also give breakpoints and rights of accumulation. I couldn't think of it. Jesus Christ. Okay. So if they offer rights of accumulation and breakpoints and no 12B1 fees, they can charge 8.5%. If they char if they don't do that or they charge other things, it's going to be less. Let's go through it. So let's go through this. I know this looks scary, but okay. So let's go th through this. Look, you maybe get one or two questions. Okay, let's go through this. It looks a little scary, but again, if, you, if you're having a tough time memorizing this shit, which most people probably will, it's one question. I'm just putting out there for people who just want to have it. And maybe if you hear it right before the test, it sticks. So the max sales charge is 8.5%. That's if you have no 12B1 fees and you chart and you allow rights of accumulation and break points. What are break points? Break points are good, right? Those are volume discounts. So if you offer volume discounts, then you then offer volume discounts, rights of accumulation, and no 12B1 fee, you can charge 8.5%. Now remember, break, point, break points are good, but break point sales are a violation. That's when you put somebody in just below a break point to get a bigger sales charge. So that's 8.5%. If you don't charge, if you don't allow a rights of accumulation and you sell the break points, you have to drop what you can charge to 8%. Now, remember, nobody fucking charges this shit anymore because you better show Bernie Madoff like returns if you're charging 8% to go in. Now, remember, these are front-end sales charges. It doesn't really matter, but in general, sales charges can't be more than this. Now, let's say you don't offer breakpoints. Then again, drops even more. So again, the first one is 8.5% max, no 12B1 fees. Yes, rates of accumulation. Yes, break points. Second one, you drop it to 8% if you have no 12B1 fees still, but you don't offer the rights of accumulations, you still have break points. Now, let's say you don't offer break points. It drops to 7.75% if you have a rights of accumulation and 7.25% if you don't. Now, if you're listening on the podcast, I apologize. It's just let it go. But again, 7.75% if you have a rights of accumulation, but no break points. 7.25% if you don't have any of that. No 12B1 fee, no rights of accumulation, no breakpoints. Now, if you do charge a 12B1 fee, it drops again. If you charge service fees, you can only do six and a quarter percent. If you don't have service fees, then it's seven and a quarter. I know that's a lot. Now, remember something. The 12B1 fee, which is that for marketing and advertising, right, or refunds to brokers for sending people in their rebates, that the max that could be is three quarters of 1% charge annually, quarterly, whatever you want to do. It's annually that three quarters of 1%, but they can break it up into quarters. Again, don't be scared of this. This is just, now let's talk about this. So if they charge a max sales charge, they you know if they're going to charge 8.5%, they have to offer rights of accumulation, no 12B1 fees and break points. What are break points? Break points are volume discounts. The more you put in, the less you pay. Okay, so class A, there's three classes to get in, right? Main. Class A is a front-end sales charge. They have a, they have volume discounts, breakpoints, stuff like that. So they're better for long-term, lower fees, and a lot of money. So remember, Class A is long-term, a lot of money. B shares is called the contingent deferred, which means it's coming, it's getting paid on the way out, and it lowers as you get as you hold it longer. So that's better for just long-term. Money isn't really a thing, but they will pay 12B1 fees. Now, dropping it down to Class C is no sales charge. It's like a level load. They basically charge you the max 12B1 fee every year. 
Okay, that's for short term. That's like for in and out, run of the year, two years, three years, maybe. Like, don't worry about it too much. Just know A is long term with a lot of money. B is long term. Usually it turns into A after like 10 years, maybe. A lot of firms don't even offer B anymore. And C shares is no sales surge. You can't call it a no load. Now, a no load fund is this fund that it's it's no sales charge going in or out like the C, but the 12B1 fee is capped at 0.25% or 25 basis points. They absolutely can ask you about that. Now, when do they calculate your, so remember when you're buying shares of an open end, you're buying it, unlike a close end and all that, you're buying it at NAV plus a sales charge, okay? The sales charge, we just talked about the max, okay? But it's of the POP. So if you want to figure out what the NAV is worth, they may just ask you to recognize it. It's the total value of the fund, all the expenses and all that, divided by the outstanding shares, which do change all day long. That's why they do forward pricing. They don't want, they don't know what's going to be every day. So at the end of the day, they calculate it. So if you buy shares at 10 a.m. and I buy 2 p.m. in an open end, we're getting the same price at the end of the day, forward pricing. A couple other things. Remember, you can't buy it on margin, but after 30 days, you can borrow against it because it's an IPO in a way, and you can't sell it short ever. It's so you can only go long and buy one of those share classes. Okay, they might ask you to figure out the percentage or the amount of the sales charge, which is super easy, I think. We have a couple of things we'll do here. One, we have the NAV, which is like the bid. POP is like the ask. So the difference here is 50 cents. We can see that. And that makes sense. That's the sales charge. But what if they want to know the sales charge percentage? You would do, you have to remember, the NAV is out of the, the sales charge is out of the POP. So you're going to do 0.5, 50 cents, divided by the POP of 10.5. That gives you, we'd have a sales charge of 4.7%. That would be our sales charge. Because it's, remember, it's, and it's the POP minus the NAV divided by the POP. That's good. Now, let's say they go like this. Oh, I can do it. There we go. Let's say they go, what if you have a sales charge of 5%? What would your POP be? And since you know the POP, the percentage of the sales charge is out of the POP, no, you could just cheat and go, okay, what's 5% of 10? And pick a number a little higher than that, and that would work. But if they don't give you a lot of choices over that. But what you would normally do is do 10 divided by the opposite of the complement of 5% or one minus 5%, which would be 95%. So you'd, multi you'd take 10, divide it by either 0.95 or 95%, whatever works, and you would get 10.52. So you do 10 NAV divided by 100 minus the sales charge, and you would get, that would be the POP, 10.52. Easy stuff. If you're getting, That's the, the extent, other than current yield, that's probably the extent of the math you'll get on this exam. This is not a math test. Now, remember, everything about a mutual fund is taxable. There's no such thing as deferred taxes in it. Obviously, if it's in an IRA or something, that's different. But a mutual fund on its own is not tax deferred. You put money in, it grows. You, if, if they pay out, if you sell the thing, you pay cap gains, whether it's long or short. If it's over a year, it's long. If it's a year or less, it's short. If you get dividends, those are pretty much always going to be short term. They pay dividends quarterly because they have to kick out 90% of their income to be considered a, we have that tax break. Okay, so now, whatever the hell they want to call it. Just, you know, it's Reg M, okay? Regulation M allows them to pass through 90% of their income and then they don't pay taxes on it. That's good for you. That's called the pass-through, just like REITs, which are not covered under the act, okay? REITs are not covered under the investment company after 40. Now, everything about a mutual fund is taxable. I can't say that enough, okay? So if they distribute dividends, you're going to pay taxes on that. Even if you choose to automatically reinvest, you're still paying taxes on that shit, okay? So you're regulating... You're getting a dividend and you're going to reinvest it right away. You're going to check the reinvest button, but the IRS still thinks you got it. And then you have to pay taxes on it. It's like phantom income. I mean, in a way, 
then annually they kick out capital gains. Now, if they list it as a long-term capital gain, it is. So remember, however the mutual fund treats the distribution, that's the same for you. If it's long-term, it's long-term. If it's short-term, it's short-term. The dividends are almost always going to be ordinary income because that even if it's from muni funds and all that stuff, well, a muni fund, there's different taxes, but you should know that already because you're taking it tomorrow. But the dividends from a mutual fund are pretty much always taxable and the capital gains will be taxable, hopefully at a long-term gain. So even if you buy the fund the day before the distribution, you're getting, you're, it's going to be long-term for you if they list it as long-term. And the prospectus delivery and prospectus delivery is due no later than confirmation of the trade. You can send electronic if, if the client has elected to positively elect for electronic delivery. Other than that, it has to go paper. Let's get into the annuities again. Remember, this is quick and dirty. If you want more, I have tons of videos for this. Now, an annuity is a non-qualified plan. The money goes in after tax, grows tax deferred. You buy accumulation units, right? And if you do a, if you do a, I'm just going to do it through without even cutting this one. So if you do a lump sum, you can either do deferred annuity or an immediate. You get paid out right away. If you do a contract plan, you can only do deferred. The money grows tax deferred in the accumulation phase. And then when you turn 59 and a half, you can withdraw without a penalty. But remember, you can annuitize at any time. You can annuitize your annuity at any time. Um, if you put the money in and a non-qualified plan, now if it says qualified, believe them, okay? So most are non-qualified, means it goes in after tax, gross tax deferred. If it's qualified, it just means it goes in pre-tax and gross tax deferred. The difference is if it's a non-qualified and you take the money out, you're going to pay tax on the growth board portion, not the um, not the, the principal or the capital return. If you do a qualified annuity, you pay tax on everything. And remember, every time you have return, a deferred income or a retirement something, it's always ordinary income. If you do a fixed annuity, it's in the general account. Remember, these are sold by insurance companies and you have no market risk. You have other risks, inflation risk. And if you do a variable annuity, it's held in a general or sub and the separate or sub account. And you, you have market risk, but you have less inflation risk. Once you turn, what actually, once you turn into where you want to annuitize, okay, um, they're gonna, you're going to choose the payout choices. Remember, life, straight life or life only is always the highest payout. That's the big one. Always highest payout. And each payment, if it's a non-qualified, will be partially taxable, partially return of income. Once you once you choose a method, meaning a payout structure, life only, joint less survivor, stuff like that, you can't change it. Okay? Now, um, and remember, the life, they, all pay, they pretty much pay you for life. Remember, annuities pay you for life. Insurance pays you when you die. Annuities pay until you die. Insurance pays when you die. Now, the the fixed annuity, it, it's not a security. It, it's, once you have a set payment, it never changes. You have a lot of inflation risk. A variable annuity, it's based on this, uh, based on how well the performance of your account does versus air, the assumed interest rate. If it's higher than air, your payment goes up. If it's lower than air, your payment goes down from the previous month. If it's the same as air, it's a uh, your payment stays the same. Remember, air is just the assumed interest rate. It's not a guarantee. It's just a benchmark. Most of this, you should all know already. I'm just kind of recapping, okay? Very quick and dirty, very fast, not going deep into it. Okay, remember, when you put money in, that's called the accumulation phase. If you die during the accumulation phase, the death benefit kicks in, and you will get, not you, you'll be dead, um, your family will get the money, either the greater of what it's grown to or what you put in. So if you actually lost money, you'll get at least what they put in. But here's the thing. Remember, everything else, when you die, they step up the cost basis, not on this. So on annuities, they don't step it up. So if you put in 20 grand and it goes to 100, 
If you withdraw it, you'll take out, they do LIFO, you take out the growth first and then your principal. But if you die, they get the whole hundred grand, they owe taxes on the 80. If you decide to withdraw from your annuity early, there may be surrender fees. And I think there's a L shares where they have a shorter surrender period. Surrender period is the number of years that you can take it out and you'll pay a surrender charge, like a penalty for pulling it out early. Kind of like whenever you pull out early, you get a penalty. Um, did I say that? I hope I didn't. So if L shares would mean that period is shorter, like it goes to zero quicker. Remember, the longer you own the annuity, the shorter that, the lower that period will be. Kind of like when you buy, if you buy into a phone plan and you're paying it in, if you leave after, or if you leave after two months, they charge you a lot. But after like nine months or two years, they don't charge you a whole lot for leaving. That kind of thing. It gets lower the longer you stay. Now, remember, unlike insurance companies, like insurance products, which you should know, if it's a whole life or universal, you can borrow against the equity. Here you can't. You're going to pull it out. So just like a, a, or ending an insurance plan early, pulling that money out, you're going to pay, you know, same, maybe some penalties and stuff like that. Where here, if you withdraw it, you're going to pay surrender charges. Absolutely. You can borrow from an insurance plan, whole life and stuff, not term, but you can't borrow from an annuity. Remember, seriously, this is a quick and dirty. I am not going deep into stuff. I'm just trying to give you shit that's going to help you. Hey, if you like what I'm doing, please hit like, subscribe, and share this shit. Okay, let's get into the advertising and retail communication. So there's three. There's correspondence, retail, and institution. Correspondence is 25 people or less. Doesn't need to be pre-approved. It's reviewed after the fact. 25 or less in a 30-day period. So 25 or less, not 26 or less, 25 or less. Is correspondence does not need to be pre-approved. If it's over 25 people, that's considered retail. Now, when I say people, I mean human beings, right? So if you send it to human beings, but here's the thing. What's interesting is that a retail person who has a net worth of more than 50 million is not a retail person. That's an institution. So they don't count. So if you send it to more than 25 individual retail clients or even non-clients, retail people, human beings, in a 30-day period, it has to be pre-approved by a principal. So again, correspondence reviewed. Retail has to be pre-approved by a principal. So you're 24, 9, 10, all that. Now, if you're sending it to just institutions, then you don't need to be pre-approved. It's going to be reviewed after the fact, again, by a principal. You can send to as many institutions as you want. The correspondence is 25 or less. Retail is 25 or more retail clients. Now, if it doesn't have some sort of recommendation or talking about securities or target prices or anything, and it's not talking about securities, then it would not be considered a communication, or at least doesn't have to be pre-approved. Also, if it's part of an interactive, okay, if it's part of an interactive chat form or something, it's retail, but doesn't need to be pre-approved. So if you see the word interactive, don't worry about pre-approved, it's reviewed. If you see static, like a permanent thing online, then that would have to be pre-approved. Like if you go to a seminar and you're teaching and you're talking aloud, that's not pre-approved. But if you hand out a, a handout a brochure that's written, that has to be pre-approved. Some of this shit has to be filed with FINRA, which sucks. Okay. So if you're a brand new member, one member firm, your firm is one year or less. Okay. If your firm is one year or less, then all retail communications and advertising has to be sent to FINRA 10 days before first use, 10 days before, before, before first use. After one year that goes out the window, no more pre-filing. So if it's an investment company, so there's, there's 10 days before and 10 days after. So I'm going to do the 10 days before first, that makes sense, and then 10 days after or within 10 days after. So if you have any kind of investment company, variable annuity, mutual fund, stuff like that, if it has self-created rankings or ratings, it has to be filed 10 days before. Again, 
if it's an investment company or any kind anything under the act, under the act of 40, it's 10 days before first use. Okay. Has to be filed 10 days before first use, along with the ranking or rating data that you use. Because you can't just say, hey, we're number two in the country and you only use two mutual funds. They got to know that. You got to put it in there. You have to disclose that. Also, anything with securities futures, 10 days before. Don't know you'll get that. Now, within 10 days is investment companies that don't have self-created rankings or ratings. Let's make sure you got this. When I say self-created rankings or ratings, that means you did it or you hired the person to do that. So if it's DPPs, options, CMOs, or investment companies without self-created rankings or ratings, you file it within 10 days of first use, not before. The only time you do before is if it has, if it's futures or self-created rankings or ratings with all the data. Now, I want to go back to the social media a little bit, okay? Because I do like that. Okay, so now, if it's a static, I'm going to, because I went quickly through it. If it's a static social media post or website that can't be changed, that's called static, that has to be pre-approved by a principal. If it's an interactive, like a chat or a forum that can change and it's movement, then it just has to be reviewed after the fact. Let's say someone puts out a post on social media, either it's on our site or not, or somewhere else. If it's on a third-party site, it's on a third-party site, if we if we don't do anything, it's fine. But if we like, share, retweet, read whatever, endorse, then it's considered us and we have to treat it as if it's our communication, okay? That's called adopting. So if, if, if somebody posts something on a third-party site that we're not controlling and we endorse, retreat, like, or even refer to it, it's considered ours and we have to get it treated as if it's um, retail communication, okay? Secondly, if that's called adoption. If we're involved in writing it, whether known or not known, if we're involved in writing it and posting it, that's called entanglement and it absolutely has to be part of our communication policy. So again, adoption is if somebody, a third party does something and we like to retreat, share, refer to. Entanglement is similar, but we were involved in writing or we had direction of it, we hired them, stuff like that. Both of them, if we do that, we like, share, retreat, or if we're adopting or entanglement, it has to be treated as if it's retail communication. Okay, so an emitting prospectus or a summary prospectus cannot contain an application to invest. So an emitting prospectus or a summary is like advertising in a way because you're trying to get somebody to buy, but it can, it's just a lot of information. You cannot have it go with an application to invest. This way they go, okay, you have to make a phone call. If you're going to show performance data, you have to show one, five, and 10 or a lifetime. So one, five, 10, not annual. You, I saw a question, I'm not telling you questions, but I saw a question where they said annual and that's not it. So it's one, five, 10 lifetime. Now, if they're going to do that and they, they do have to show you, if they're going to show you sales charges, they have to show you the worst sales charge, like the max sales charge that they can offer. And then hopefully you do better than that with breakpoints. But again, advertising has to show you the worst sales charge, not the cheapest. Now, we can also do illustrations, right? Illustrations are like we're illustrating what you can make. We can show as high as 12%, but if we do, then we also have to show 0%. So we can show as high as 12%, but then we also have to show 0%. On to more random shit. So a drip, drip, DR, not me, I'm, I'm a drip, but it's a dividend reinvestment program. That's where you hire, either you, you work with your broker dealer or the actual issuer and you buy shares and then the dividends are automatically reinvested to buy new shares or fractional shares. Remember something, that's considered taxable. So if you get cash, not you get it, if they pay cash dividend and it's automatically reinvested, then that would, a part of the drip program, that would be taxable to you. If it came as a stock and it was you just got more stock all the time, 
that would not be taxable until the end. So again, a drip, you get cash, even if you're invested, it's taxable. If it comes as a, in the form of stock immediately without like stock that you didn't have to buy, you're just getting it. That would not be taxable yet. Later, yes. Now, no. Okay, we're heading all over the place. Reg BI, best interest. That means that's, that's the new rule that started about new rules from 2020 that required that broker dealers always recommend what's in the best interest, not just suitable. Because used to be the suitability one was you had if you had four choices and all of them were suitable, you can pick the one that pays you the most. Now you have to go back to picking the one that's best for the customer, okay? You have to, you have, if you have four bunch of things that are suitable, you have to pick the one that's best for the customer. You also, also have to disclose all your conflicts of interest. You, you have an obligation to disclose all material facts. You can't, any kind of conflicts of interest, you have to f- kind of fix. Any kind of, you can't limit what you offer. You can't just offer like proprietary products. That's just not okay. Because you have to show them everything that would be suitable to you. Now, the other part of this is, Sales contests, they eliminated them, but let's go into this first of all. Sales contests are not okay if they're tied to a specific product. Sales contests are okay if they're for just commissions in general, not specific products. So that makes sense because if you said, oh, no, whoever sells the most variable annuities, well, then everyone's going to try to sell variable annuities even if they're not suitable. So Ray BI got rid of the sales contest and they were doing it anyway. And that are tied to specific products. It just has to be across the board for like total commissions done in a certain time period, whatever. In addition to this, retail retail clients have to get a form CRS. It literally, just, literally, I oh God, I shouldn't say that, but it, it pretty much just breaks down the relationship, the services and the, the, the fees, the costs, the conflicts of interest, all that stuff. For the customer to see, so they know full eyes, eyes wide open, what um what 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 they're going to charge. You have to give it to all clients and prospective clients. Retail, not institutional, because we fuck them. We don't care about the institutions. They can defend themselves. Okay, so let's. Somebody got a question. Someone in this. If you have an error, somebody calls up and says, "Hey, I bought a thousand shares. It should have been a hundred. That's just an error that goes into the error file. That is not a complaint. Remember that. A complaint is a written complaint about an individual or about the firm. It is not you had an error. If you had an error, you fix it. You put it in the error file, take the hit, whatever it is, and you move on. That is not a complaint. Okay. Let's say you do get a complaint. Okay. You get a complaint. It has to be in writing. If it's not in writing, it didn't get a complaint. Every firm, every branch has to have a folder for the complaints because, trust me, FINRA will come and check and go, where's your folder? And we always had to have this blank fucking folder with um, the year on. Um, Any complaints have to be kept. They have to refer to your principal and the principal has to record what action they took. There's no timeline really, but they have to have what what they did, the complaint and how they handled it. Also, complaints have to be kept for four years. So let's do it. Three, center on it, record retention. Everything is three years, except for complaints are four. Anything to do, any money laundering is five. And then big sacks is six. Blotter, which is a trade blotter. That's the B. Then the G. Let me do it on here because this way we can actually make it look right okay so six years big look looks like big sacks right it looks crappy but it is like big santa carries six big sacks big sacks fanatically you got to think outside the box a little bit but that's what i do i'm literally outside the box i need to go inside the box once in a while so big sacks blotter trades those are the trades g for general ledger that's all the money going in and out S, stock records, all the records of all the stock ownership. C, customer information. And then S, statements. All those things are six years. Big sex. Santa carries six big sex. I wish I could draw Santa. Now, 
the lifetime is anything with formation docs, a board minutes, articles of incorporation, partnership minutes, all that stuff. Those are all lifetime. Okay, a couple more things that'll help you out. ACAT, what is an ACAT? When you're going to transfer from one broker deal to another, you have the, when you fill out the form, they have the broker dealer has one day to verify and then three days to deliver it. You're going to see questions on this. One day to verify, three days to deliver. That's an ACAT or a transfer initiation form TIF. Okay, so especially when you open an account, sometimes for a person, sometimes they're specified adults. So this is going to definitely be on the exam, some version of this. So a specified adult is someone over the age of 65 or over 18 with a mental impairment you think can't make their own decisions. You don't, they do. You're going to suggest or they're going to be pressured, not pressured, invited to bring in a trusted contact person, someone who they trust, a family member or something like that, who can help with, um, they don't make decisions, they don't have custody, they shouldn't. They're just help to, to mitigate problems with the with an adult. So if you think there's some sort of exploitation going on, you can put a hold for 15 days, but then you have to start an investigation. Once you start the investigation, if you think that there's actually, if there's information that supports it, you can do another 10 days. So that's 25 days right there, 15 right away, up to 15 business days. You can then do another 10 business days. Now you can you can extend that temporary hold for another 30 days if you report it to state authority and you allow the time for the best, to allow time for an investigation. But to get to the extra 30, you have to report it to a state authority. So, so like if, if you have a customer who's older and their and their nephew and they open they, their nephew they put their name nephew's name is on the account and the nephew like tries to transfer all the assets to his account that would be a sign of exploitation if you see all of a sudden that's where the you know your customer comes in if you see that they're you know spent you know they spend normally they buy this they buy that and then they withdraw fifty bucks a week or something like that all of a sudden you see them start to withdraw more stuff you go, okay ask questions and if it doesn't sound right. Get the just a contact person. If you think that's not good enough, bring it up to your principal and put a hold on it. Remember, 15 days first. You can extend it 10 days after if the investigation bears some fruit and an extra 30 days after you've reported to the state authority. Let's say you're registered. You have to be in you have to be with the firm for at least three years. You can, if you're going to retire. So this way, old people go, right? People like my age get the fuck out. Um, they'll let you retire. If you if you've been there for at least three years. You can sign a contract, okay? You can sign a contract. You fill out the, the terms ahead of time where the, you even after you retire, you're going to get paid until you die. And even if you die, they can pay your spouse a percentage of commissions from business that you brought in. So if you have like, you know, say you have, you know, 50 or 60 or 50, 60, 100 clients or whatever it is, and you want to retire, you can have someone else take it over and then you cut a deal with the firm to get a piece of, of the commissions of that business until you die and then your spouse dies. That's as far as you can go. It can't go to your kids. Now, um, it can't be any new business. So say you got a husband and wife and they're your clients. And then after you retire, the kid comes in. It's not yours. That's the other person's. Now, here's the question I'm, I'm thinking about. What if you get paid off and a complaint comes in against one your client? I think that's on the firms, the register up who's candle and cloud, not you. They may name you and then you have to figure it out. But if they don't name you, if, if, if the complaint is against a registered rep and also the reg the retired one, they're named, then you have to handle it. But if they're not named in it, then I got to think it's only on the registered rep who was screwing up the account. Now, let's talk about this. Let's say, and here's a, so me get a question. Let's say you are, there's a bank, JP Morgan, or say, say Chase is in the front. And then JP Morgan or a, a, fill, a bank wants to allow a broker dealer to do business on the premises. That's called a network, um, 
I think it's a networking arrangement. I think that's what it's called, where there'll be a broker dealer in the back. Now, let's say you get transferred to that little broker dealer, little branchy thing. You cannot sit with the bankers, okay? That's the thing. If you go in there, you cannot sit with the other bankers. You have to sit in a separate spot. And I would say, if I did it, I would have a different carpeting. But there has to be warning, like a sign and visual, a written and oral warning that if they do business in there and they do business with that, it's not FDIC improved. You may lose value and it's SIPA covered. So that's the thing. They have to make sure that they know that it's not a banking product. It's not backed up by the FDIC, which is a bank thing, and is subject to loss. They have to be told that. So I'm going to say this again. you got to read the customer accounts before you go in. The last thing you do, other than my wonderful rambling fucking rant, you have to read customer accounts. It's going to give you easy points, easy goddamn points. Moving on. Again, random shit. There's no order. I'm just trying to rant this stuff, okay? Now, what's a 529? 529 versus a Coverdell. You can't do the Coverdell, but you can do some of the 529 stuff, right? Because that's a muni fund. 529s, the money goes in, it's for education. Money goes in after tax. It grows tax deferred and it comes out tax free. If you if they have to, they don't have to use it, but there's no income limits, there's no age limits, and there's the the total contribution limit is really freaking high. It's set by the states. It is a state thing. So if you're gonna invest, put somebody in a 529 from another state, you need to pay attention to the tax requirements. You have you may have some tax consequences that you have to disclose. If you're own state, you're probably not gonna pay taxes. But you got to make sure it goes in. The problem with the 529, the bad part is, is that you're limited on what you can contribute, what you not what you can contribute, what you can invest in. Like they'll have a list of securities that you can invest in, mutual funds, some sort of funds that you can invest in, but you can't do specific securities like a Coverdell would. That's a 529. It's a muni fund security. It's awesome. It's good for college. Now, you, let's keep going. I can, under the gift limit, I can put in, in 2023, 17 grand, not a number they're going to ask, okay? Because they want to keep the question in, so they'll probably just say up to the maximum gift limit. You can actually give, in a 529, you can give more if you, you can preload five years, so 17 times five or whatever the current year is, times five, you can do it, but then you can't give any more money for five years. Now, here's the thing, though. If you do give money, you might have to pay taxes on it or use it toward your lifetime uniform gift gift limit of like $12 million. Just keep track of it. So you actually don't have to pay taxes on it. You think you would, but you have a lifetime gift limit that you can give out $12 million a year of, of in your lifetime. It's $12 million now. It goes up and down based on whatever Congress wants to do. Um, just keep documenting that. I like that. Also, um, if it's funny, the gift limit, it's considered a gift to the child. But what's interesting, if you use the 529 to pay directly, directly to the institution and not send it to the kid, it's not a gift. That's an interesting thing. So you put the 529 in, technically a gift. But if you decide to give it to the school instead of the child to pay the bill, then it's not a gift and it's just there. It shouldn't affect your, you should, if you have a 529 for college, you should hold it in your own name. You can have a beneficiary, you have it, you should be the owner of it because if you're the owner of it, then a very small part of it counts towards your financial aid calculations. If you have it in the kid's name straight up as the owner, then they use a lot more of it. Now you're getting old or it's time to retire. Let's talk about it. So they have different, so qualified plans are, are plans sponsored by a corporation. It's pre-tax, they have a lot of rules. You can't discriminate, which means you have to give one. If you give it to one person, you have to give it to everyone who's full-time over 21. There's a vesting schedule, which is the number of years before they can actually access it. Now, it'll be in their fund, but if they want to leave, they can't leave with it. Okay. That's a vesting schedule. They're not going to ask specifics on that. Um, 
you can't take the money out before 59 and a half without a penalty. If it's a 401k, you can borrow against it, but you have to pay it back through payroll deduction. Might have done this already. Um, 73 is when you have to start taking it out. They used to have, it used to be 72. Now it's 73. And it used to be a 50% penalty. Now it's a 25% penalty. If you don't take it out by what they call RMD when you're supposed to, that's going to be a 25% penalty on what you're supposed to take out. You don't have to take out everything. You have to take it out on a plan. And if you're supposed to take out 20 grand and you don't, you're going to pay 25% penalty on that. Now, um, if you inherit, well, we'll come back to that. So now that's a 401k, that's a qualified plan. There's also deferred comp, which is non-qualified, which means it's not protected the same way. Qualified plans, protected, you open one at say JP Morgan or Goldman, the funds will actually be held in a third party, like a Fidelity, Vanguard, something like that. So this way, if JP Morgan or Goldman goes under, not going to happen, although I thought that about Lehman and Bear, um, then you're okay. But a deferred comp plan is actually non-qualified. You can discriminate. There's a lot more, there's a lot less rules. But the problem with deferred comp is, I mean, it's great, but because it's extra money you can do for retirement and you can invest like that. But if the firm goes under, that can be used toward credit to pay their creditors. And if you leave early or leave get terminated or leave, you may lose some of your benefits or golden handcuffs. I do video, I did a video on this where a deferred comp plan, you put money in, it grows, maybe tax deferred, whatever it is. And if you leave early, you might lose that. So you're tending to stay because you have all this money there. Back in the 90s, we did it, and um, I'm not gonna waste too much time. But what you would do is you would negotiate a bonus to offset what you left. So that's qualified means it's pre-tax. It's sponsored by a corporation. Non-qualified is usually after tax. They both go tax deferred. We talked about annuities are, are non-qualified also. Money goes in after tax. Now as IRAs go, we have our IRA, regular IRA, which is pre-tax. And we have a Roth IRA, which is after tax. They're both technically non-qualified plans, even though the contribution to an IRA is qualified. If you put money in an IRA, there's no income limits. You can only put in a limit. Right now it's 6,500. I don't think they asked that. You put it in, it grows tax deferred. And then when you take it out, you pay tax on everything. Same rules, 59 and a half early without a penalty. And um, 73, you have to start taking it out. But you can take money out for before 59 and a half. For all IRAs, you can take them out for like education, first-time home buyer, um, disability, death, stuff like that. Um, Roth and IRA are both the same way. Now, Roth is different. Money goes in after tax. It grows tax deferred. As long as it's been in there for um, at least five years and it grows tax-free. So when you take it out, you don't have to pay taxes on it. There's no RMD. You can take your principal out anytime you want. Okay, so this is absolutely taxable. Everyone's going to get on it. If you have an IRA, if say someone you're related to dies with an IRA and leaves it to you, it matters. If you're a spouse, you could do a rollover into your own IRA. And if they're older, just put it in a regular, don't worry about the Roth, especially if they're working. You can roll it over and take the IRA as you own, as your own. If you're a non-spouse, you have to do an inherited IRA and you have to take it out over a 10-year period. You don't get to roll it into your own. It's called an inherited. So go back and forth. If you're a spouse, it's a rollover. If you're a non-spouse, it's inherited. Those num words matter. Some of the exceptions, if the person is a minor they're, and they inherit it, they're not subject to the 10-year rule until they hit 18. Person who died was already subject to RMD. You have to take that year's RMD out and then go either with your 10-year plan or roll it in. If you're watching this in 2024 after, you're, you can roll over a 529 into a Roth IRA. If it's if you see a 2023 in your year, that's a no, okay? It's not yet. Next year, you can start doing that, so it'll be on the exam in 2024. 
Hopefully this will have millions of views. It'll have like nine views. I'm not worried about that. So a Roth IRA goes in after tax, grows tax deferred. If you hold it for five years or more, it's tax free. Again, more little cleanup. I think we're getting near the end. So you're it's good. You get to go, you get to move on and pass the same thing. So when you're trading, there's two types of income. There's ordinary income, which is progressive, and technically capital gains is too. So ordinary income and capital gains. Capital gains is only three things that are capital gains: a buy and sell, um, option expiration, or mutual fund distribution of capital gains. Other than that, it's ordinary income. So ordinary income is like your earned income. If you don't have earned income, you can't put money in an IRA. That's a good thing. So if you have an IRA, we're going to go back a little bit, you must have earned income, not dividend income, not preferred, not interest income. It has to be earned income, like salary, wages, commissions, shit like that. Now, capital gains is what you get from buying and selling. If you buy an asset, if you say you buy a mutual fund and you hold it for over a year, it's a long-term capital gain, which is taxed at a lower rate. If it's a year or less, it's taxed at the higher, your ordinary income rate. Hope that helps. Now, if you lose, so before we go on, if you buy shares at multiple times, if you don't mention a method, like say you buy shares at you know 40, 50, 60, and then you sell only 100 shares, like one part of it, you have, if you don't mention a method, they automatically do FIFO. Or, or that you have select a share or a specified shares where you can choose which shares you sell for your cost basis, right? If you buy stock at 40, 50, and 60, and you sell it at 70. If you don't mention a method, they're going to do 40 and you'll pay taxes on 30 bucks, which sucks. You would probably prefer to buy this, to use the 60 shares you sold, so then you pay taxes on only 10. That's fine. So that could be specified shares. Only in mutual funds get to do average cost. You get to do average cost in mutual funds. As you can say, I bought a 40, 50, and 60. You held 70. You can use the 50. You're allowed to do that. Regular stocks, you can't. If you lose money, say you lose money trading, you can use all of that to offset your capital gains. Remember, you can use all of it to offset your capital gains. And then whatever is left over, you can use three grand a year against your earned income and then carry for the rest. Most of this stuff you should know. Okay. Now, what happens if you sell stock for a loss and buy it back within 30 days? Yes, that's a wash sale. Okay. A wash sale is when you sell stock for a loss. And you buy back the shares within 30 days or buy back calls, warrants, rights, convertibles, anything that would turn into the stock within the 30 days. Now, actually, if you sell it on this day, they go back 30 days and forward 30 days to check to see if you violated. It's not a big deal. Just means you can't take the loss now. They're going to adjust your cost basis, put the loss into it. Don't have to do the math on it. But know that when you actually sell the stock for a, for whatever and stay out of it for 30 days, then you can deduct the loss if you still have one. Let's go over a couple of things that are there. So like last minute shit. Wash trades. Wash, not a wash sale. I like to do it right after. A wash trade is when you buy and sell with two different accounts without changing ownership. That's actually a violation. That's manipulation. You're, you're trying to make the price go up. That's one. What if you have a job? Okay. Again, this you should be reading this stuff or you should know this already. If you have a job, if you work at a broker dealer and you want a second job, okay, you have to let them know. Fair enough. You have to let them know. They can actually have rules that says no, you need permission. But FINRA's rule are you just need to let them know. If you want to have an account outside, a brokerage account outside of the firm, you have to get permission ahead of time. If you want to do transactions for a buddy and you want to get paid for it, like tra security transactions for another person and they want to pay for you, that's outside the broker dealer. Both of those, you need permission ahead of time or it's called selling away. Okay, I'll do the last thing here, I think. Other than a little advice, don't go away yet because I'm going to give advice on how to take the test. Um, let me say that for the end. 
continuing education, it used to, if you have an older book, it's going to have the old rules. The new rules are for continuing education are it's annual. So firm element is annual. They set it up. Continuing education is annual also. So once you pass these exams, you have one year, you have a whole year to do it. Every year they do it. It's not a little three month window anymore. It's a whole, you have a whole year to do it. Okay. So you can sit there some January. So once you pass this, which you will in January, you'll have to start doing, um, you'll see the continuing education pop up on your FinPro account and just do it. They're not hard. Depending on how many licenses you get, you'll have more exams. Like I have like nine or 11, 11. So I get a shit. I mean, it's just like a stack of shit. Okay. And you just do them. They're not hard. It's like anti-money laundering, you know, all little things that they think are going on with violations and how to handle customers and stuff like that. You do learn from it, which is not bad. And you can't fail. You just, if you run out of time, they just start you over again. Luckily you can do that from home. It used to have to be parametric. Now you can do it from home. Don't let somebody else do it. I promise you, do not let somebody else do it for you. I know somebody got in trouble and got banned from the business because they let the manager do it for them, which is just moronic. Okay. Um, that's continuing education. Make sure you do it every year. For continuing education, firm element is every year done by your firm. Regulatory element is done by FINRA. Okay. Remember, this isn't everything, just little shit that I think might help just consolidate it into one spot. Okay. That's all I'm doing. Watch, read customer accounts. I'm telling you, either that or watch my goddamn video. Now, if you go into the test, you know, make sure you breakfast, all this stuff. It's not a super long test, so it's not as big a deal. But you want to go in there, get a good night's sleep. Start getting your sleep nights before. But if you're watching this a day of, it's too fucking late, so sorry. So go in there. You can, Now you can bring water in with you. They'll take the wrapper off. You can leave it with you, which is great. I would say do it. Before you go in, make sure you check the marker. Make sure the calculator works. Two times two, two plus two, two divided by two. Make sure you know what those numbers are before you calculate them. But you want to make sure it works. If you get a fat marker, I don't know, tell them, hey, listen, I can't use this fat one. Give me a thinner one, whatever. You go in there, they have the tutorial. If you have a dumb sheet stuff you want to write down, like bond, teeter, totters, and stuff, but it's not a big deal. Again, not a lot of math on this exam. Go in, you take the test, you go through. Now, you look at a question. Remember, you have a certain amount of time. You get about a minute and a half per question. So you want to use it. That's a lot of time, but you don't want to waste it. You should, you should be fine. You go in there. Start, do questions. You look at it right away. I can answer it, answer it. Don't waste a lot of time. Trust your gut. You know your shit. You've done your stuff. You got this. I know you're going to get this. Second, if you don't know it, just pick an answer and move on. You're not going to get an epiphany in the next hour and a half. Okay, so now. Third, if you're, wow, it's truly 50-50, not 70-30, not like it's, here's the thing. If you think it's one thing, but, oh, it might be that, it's never the it might be. It just isn't, okay? It's, a, it's never the it might be. You're not going to love your answer, but you're pretty sure what it is. That's probably the right answer because that's the way they write the test. There's a couple of gimmies, but a lot of things are just like, uh, I think that's the right answer. I feel like, so you go with it. Trust your gut. You're going to feel like you're failing the whole time. It just, it's the way they're written. Now, and I promise you, you're going to tell me Ken's an idiot. I don't believe that. It is absolutely true. Now, onward. If I have, um, if I'm truly 50-50, like literally, I'm like, oh my God, it's A or C. I can't tell the difference. That you put in the mark for review and come back to it later. Maybe you get whatever. The other one is if it's a really long question, which it shouldn't be a lot of them. And you're like, I know the topic. You mark for review and come back to it later. Okay. It's really long. I think I can get it. Move it off. You don't want to waste time on it. So because here's the thing. If you spend five minutes on a long question that you think you can get, you'll get that one, but then you'll rush on the next. You might lose three or four questions because you're rushing just because you can't, because um, you don't want to push it into the review. Long one, you think you can get, push into review, don't worry about it. If it's 50-50, push into review, then come back to it. Now, before you hit submit, obviously, you have to go back, check the ones that you put in your review, maybe you're okay. 
Then before you hit submit again, go back and check the first five questions. That's when you are the most like nervous, not on your game, stuff like that. That's when you're the most like, oh, I might make stupid mistakes. That's what you need to do. And if you're good, good. But remember, if they're good, you got them. But remember, the only time you change answers, never change an answer unless it's what I call punch you in the face wrong. It's the only time you do it. If it's punch you in the face wrong, like you literally go, Ken, you're a freaking moron. What were you thinking? That's the that's the bar to change it. If you're not sure, leave it because your gut's way better than that. Listen, guys, I know you got this shit. You've done all the work. You've done everything. You're going to go in there, take this like a goddamn savage. Let's be a bad bitch and beat this thing. And then you come on my live and tell me how well you did. And we fucking celebrate. Have a great night. I will see you later. Yeah.